I decided to take a different run than everybody else uh, to the bottom uh, landing zone. I was adjusting my speed and unknowingly hit this chunk of ice. Just as I was trying to push myself up, get myself free, my sloth hit me. And uh, at that point, I felt more like I was swimming a class five rapid than I was snowboarding in, a, in Alaska. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Hey guys, today is going to be a fun episode. Joining us is my friend and professional photographer, Abe Blair. Abe specializes in capturing some of the most breathtaking landscape photos I've ever seen. He also has a handful of published action shots. His work has been featured live on CNN. He's done work for Patagonia Clothing, DC Shoes, and he's been featured on the pages of Powder Magazine along with a variety of other large-scale publications. In addition to telling us a few details about his earlier years, he is going to share with us an adventure story, and as always, one with a life lesson attached. Hopefully it'll be just the lesson some of us needed to hear today. Let's go ahead and get started. Abe, how you doing, man? Good, good. Super glad to be talking to you. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. So Abe and I uh, have some shared history. We spent some time... uh, guiding rafting trips down the Deschutes River in central Oregon. I was pretty green and Abe knew it and uh, he picked me out and kind of helped me along the way and and made uh, some quick improvements to some technique and some uh, habits that had formed early on that I was able to to benefit from and uh, it ended up being just a great summer. So Abe and I spent uh, the better part of four months kind of in the same little circle in a little town called Maupin, Oregon. And it's, uh, it's probably been what, 10, 12 years, Abe. Yeah, sounds about right. Probably. So, uh, it's, it's great to reconnect with him and, and kind of see where, uh, where things have gone. So Abe, we, uh, we really appreciate you carving out some time to spend, uh, spend an hour with us and, uh, we can't wait to hear your story. Uh, just get us going on, on kind of the early life. What was your childhood like, man? Where'd you grow up? Um, I mean, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Um, and uh, to uh, parents who, who loved going to the outdoors. My dad was an avid uh, fisherman. My mom loved to go hiking. Um, so uh, growing up in Portland uh, in the 80s, still a small community then. So we had lots of access to really good quality outdoors. Um, so I definitely remember spending all of our weekends, all of our free time camping. We, we didn't do Disneyland. We didn't do Hawaii. Um, we didn't do, I never went to Disneyland until I had my own kids and Hawaii, not till a teenager. <laughs> our, our vacations were camping, driving around the state, finding little, little nooks and crannies that, you know, didn't have any people around. Awesome. So you pretty much grew up adventuring outside. Um, what, uh, what were your high school years like? Um, you know, 
very similar. Um, you know, school got in the way with 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 outside life. Um, you know, I definitely remember once I got a car. You know, I was you know getting out of school early or showing up to school late because I was I was out position with with friends um, whenever whenever possible and um, you know balancing that with with the social aspects and, and playing soccer and hockey um, just was was busy super active all the time. Yeah, did that take you all across the state or did you did you pretty much stay right around the Portland area or in in the Pacific Northwest? Um, mostly. So, um, you know, we travel Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, uh, playing hockey, uh, as well as soccer. What was kind of your first encounter with a, with a camera, Abe? How did that, uh, part of your life come to be? Um, I received a, a camera from my grandma when she passed away, uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, in high school. And, uh, my parents, uh, already had cameras and enjoyed taking photos quite a bit. So they gave me, uh, her old Canon AE1 manual focus camera. And, um, that happened in the, in the summer between freshman and sophomore year. So I was able to then uh, enroll in, in photography class, uh, you know, as a uh, not very focused teenager in the academics. Uh, you know, photography class was a, uh, a known uh, alternative. Cool. So, it's, I mean, I'm already gathering early childhood academics didn't, didn't really rank high on your list of things to do. No, no, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. Um, I always tested high and, and was placed in, you know, the AP classes. Um, but then just sort of, um, skirted by, yep. uh, within those programs. Yep. Got, got your passing marks and then rushed out the door. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. To charge after what, where your heart lied. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, at the time there was a skateboard park nearby the high school, so I would routinely uh, go down there and you know have access to really good quality talent to uh, practice action photography. Nice. So that's is that kind of where you cut your teeth? Then is that what you? I mean, would you say that uh, taking action shots and and actually figuring out how to effectively capture moving targets was uh, was primarily learned at the skate park? I'd say so. I mean, it was definitely. When I, when I received that camera, I also learned to snowboard that same year, and I took the camera with me. And photographing my friends jumping off the off the jumps was was fun, and and the skateboarding was so much more accessible. And like I said, the talent was was better. Yeah. So yeah, definitely spent a lot of time, you know, learning. I, you know, I remember like Phil Flash photography, and just you know, finally learning that you know down there. Nice. So that I mean that you're. You're dating yourself, brother. That's uh, we're talking about uh, an entirely new world of well, old world of of photos being processed. You're from the era of snap and wait. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In high school, it was you know load your own film canisters of black and white and process it in the high school in the dark room and um, you know hand print everything. Nice. There, there was no automation. Um, then I remember this program called Photoshop came out, I think, when I was a junior in high school. And uh, these things called scanners. And we would scan our film into the computer and, and make funny alterations to their, our pictures. We couldn't really take it very serious at the time. And it was just a way to play with our photos. Wow. And Photoshop is obviously a staple in any uh, artist's quiver at this point. Pretty much, yeah. Right. What was life like after high school? What'd you do after you graduated? Um, well, uh, right before I graduated, I'd say it was a really pivotal 
time in my life where uh, I ended up shattering my skull um, with a bunch of friends uh, jumping a go-kart actually um, over a big big gravel pile and uh, in doing so ended up being in the hospital for a couple two or three months um, was unable to uh, to walk uh, and ended up losing all movement in the left side of my face hearing um, tweaked my vision a little bit and uh, so I spent about a year year and a half pretty intensive physical therapy rebuilding myself and learning learning how to live with uh, with the, the the new struggles that I had yeah I mean everything you knew up to that point had to be had to be tweaked right more or less yeah I was definitely I'd say leaning a lot more towards a formal education um, process and career path uh, in engineering and architecture. I was a big fan of math and the sciences. Okay. And shortly after that uh, accident, we I went to a community college to be tested because I wasn't going to be able to make traditional college, and my scores were uh, just unbelievably low compared to, to where they were, and it was clear that there was a lot of other... Um, uh, you know, damage uh, yeah. that that I was going to have to overcome or or adjust to. Yeah, did that. I mean, and you knew of that, right? So, I mean, being being unaware of that is one thing, but to have full function and then have it be stripped from you and be keenly aware of what was stripped from you—that's got to be a big hurdle, man. It, it definitely was. I mean, I I do remember a, a time where I I was after being talked to by the doctor was. More or less, I remember sitting in the bed just, just realizing I, I had a choice. I had two roads to, to choose. And I didn't like to listen to the prognosis of the doctors and chose uh, to try to <clears throat> forge my own my own path. I was told, you know, I'd be lucky to live on a couch uh, comfortably for the rest of my life. And I, I, I didn't like the sound of that. So... Um, I really tried to just kind of keep that out of consideration and push wow. myself every day. That's a, that's a testament to, uh, to your willpower. That's pretty, uh, I mean, how old were you? 19, 18? 18, yeah, yeah. At 18 years old, you had the medal to say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to prove beyond this. I'm going to go, I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Yeah. I just, I, I couldn't accept the, the thought of, of living, a more or less vegetable life and, and not, not being able to do the things that I did. Um, everything I did in life was, was my life, uh, and vice versa. So I couldn't accept not living that process. Wow, man, that's heavy. That's it's, and especially, I mean, it's heavy regardless of age, but that's incredibly heavy at that pivotal point in life. 18, that's right before you, I mean, you spread your wings, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, the accident happened because I was 18. I was king of the world. I was invincible, you know. And, um, I learned a lot from that. I would never uh, take that day away or, or redo that day any differently. I yeah. learned tremendously. Uh, I still learn, I think, from that from that moment. Yeah. Well, cheers to uh, to your attitude and, and your grit, man. I think there's, there's a lot to be learned from a story like that. Um, how long would you say... The transition of growth. Um, how how long was that period from the point of the accident to kind of relearning how to to speak, relearning how to eat, re, just all the physical therapy that you endured? 
how, how long of a road was that before you kind of started seeing the, uh, the growth taper, so to speak? I'd say somewhere around 18 months or so, maybe one to two years, somewhere in that time frame, I was able to, you know, be able to function independently. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I ended up having to move back to my parents' house. And, um, you know, I think I was there for a little over a year and moved out and moved around, uh, maybe almost two years there. Wow. And, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, fledged the nest again. Uh, or, or, you know, with a, a different intention. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about that. So after you, uh, after you had to, to move in with mom and dad and you kind of got settled back in there, um, enough to recoup and, and kind of reset your, your sights on, uh, another life path, so to speak. Um, where'd you, where'd you go from there? Um, I ended up, um, going back to the same job I had in high school, which was working at a camera, um, retail store. And worked there for quite some time, and then that led me into a uh, larger camera store in, in the Portland area, which was one of the larger on the West Coast, um, which through that process, that's right when digital cameras became uh, a consumer item, and I was you know right there on the forefront of that on, on a retail stance, uh, and through that job was able to make a relationship with somebody and we partnered to then create a business at a snowboard camp um, taking advantage of these newer digital cameras and photographing the campers on site and printing um, right there at the camp this revolutionary new technology basically which I think is available at pretty much any um, theme park across the country now no kidding so you were on the front the front end of that whole movement huh yep exactly that was my friend and I on that on that end, and that put us right in the uh, the heat of the at the snowboarding and ski industry uh, for the summer camps. So I would photograph the campers in the afternoon, and then get to know the upcoming talent as well as the existing professionals. Um, and that allowed me then to make contacts within the industry and, and practice and continue to kind of earn my stripes through that. Awesome. Oh, cool. So I'm kind of starting to see this take shape. So is that where you got plugged in with some of the, uh, the snowboarder magazine, trans world powder, the kind of some of the, the mainstream publications? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, very tight knit community. So, uh, you know, the, the people who now actually are the current editors of many of those publications, I remember when, you know, we were all crashing on the same floors and couches eating the same leftover, you know, food, <laughs> um, trying to get an in with the companies in the industry. And uh, I think it was definitely uh, just a constant kicking and clawing and scratching. And those who, who kept it up the longest ended up making careers of it. Wow. At, at what point did you realize, look, this I'm good at this. I've been getting a, a lot of positive feedback. I really enjoy it. This is what I, I want to carve out my career path around this. At what point was, was that? Right, right. When I was, you know, when, when, when I started that, that business, I was given the choice of either working as a sales rep for Nikon or moving up to the snowboard camp and living a completely informal, untraditional life. And, uh, honestly, I looked at my, my, my father who was a traveling salesman and I realized I was being offered 
the equivalent of his job 20 years ahead of him. And I didn't want to live the way he was living at the time, um, at that age. So I, I chose the, the um, unconventional um, path. Awesome. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. Adventure Deficit's mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire you through these stories and the life lessons they hold. We can't wait to see you get out there in pursuit of your own adventures and combat the deficit. We need your help in achieving this, and there's several ways you can get involved. First, if you're listening to this, you probably already know we're on iTunes under Adventure Deficit, but be sure to click subscribe. This way, our new episodes will automatically appear in your download queue and we'll know how many of you we're reaching. We'd love to see your feedback on there too, so feel free to post a note and let us know how we're doing. Our main website, www.adventuredeficit.com, which serves as a base camp for all of our content, is where we'll post notes from each episode, including timestamps from the highlights and direct links to any gear or information that you might want to revisit. There are gear reviews and short stories from other exciting adventures not featured on the podcast. Under support, you can either buy stuff or donate to the show. A special thanks to those of you who have already bought t-shirts or donated to us directly. This revenue enables us to continue producing content, so think about helping us in that way too, if you can. Finally, you can connect with us on social media. Our Facebook page is at the Adventure Deficit. Give us a follow, or we're on Instagram too, under Adventure Deficit. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. Adventure Deficit Community, let's get ready to combat the deficit. Abe, tell us about your adventure. Uh, well, quite a few years ago, um, I was uh, given the, the dream phone call and opportunity to photograph the, the winter catalog for Patagonia Clothing. I um, was uh, allowed to work with a handful of athletes who were some of my closest friends uh, within the, the industry and community. We were given more or less an unlimited budget and a, uh, a helicopter for nine days in Alaska. What? So, uh, just a dream come true. What age were you? How, how long ago? Probably like 2011. Okay. Um, well, with a company like Patagonia, yeah, I can imagine you had a, a nice budget and uh, it sounds like you had the right tools for an adventure. So, you were you had contracted with a chopper, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Every day we were uh, flying flying um, out of a lodge with with a helicopter, and uh, as a, an amazing joy and pleasure for me on that particular shoot was that we did not have a filmer. Traditionally, I was always attached with uh, a media film film crew, and this was this was not the case. It was strictly a photo shoot, so um, we were able to move differently, more efficiently than I'm, I was accustomed. Awesome. What was the Break break down the group for us. Was it you and a, and a couple of pro skiers and a who, a chopper pilot or? What? Yeah, we, we had we had a pilot. Uh, his name was uh, Clint, okay. and then um, our guide Ed Shanley, who uh, is an amazing Alaskan um, guide and up and coming uh, in the industry. Um, after I met him, he became uh, Jeremy Jones's personal guide for many of Jeremy Jones's uh, large multi week expeditions in, in the Alaska backcountries. Awesome. Uh, and then we had uh, Josh Dirksen, Ryland Bell, and Alex Yoder um, for the snowboard talent for the, the majority of the trip. And uh, I, I lived very close to Josh Dirksen for many years. He and I 
uh, formulated quite a relationship through the years, and we still uh, talk and, and get together a fair amount now today. Sweet. So you guys got a lodge. Where was the lodge? Uh, not too far outside of Juneau, Alaska, um, about a half an hour from, from Juneau. Okay. And uh, the objective was to use that as your home base. Did, did the chopper stay outside of the lodge or did it come in every day? Yeah, it came in every morning to pick us up. So we'd, we'd be, you know, eating breakfast in our in our gear and we'd hear that, that amazing pitter-patter of, of an A-star helicopter coming in. And boy, you know, we just instantly dropped everything, grabbed our bags, and we were we were down those hundred stairs in a split second. Yeah, I could wake up early for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's something else flying in those machines and in those, those mountains in that terrain. I bet. So uh, you drop your Wheaties, you don your, uh, your ski boots, your snowboard gear, and uh, you jump in. Where, where do you go from there? Um, every day the guide kind of has a, a detailed snow report, weather, whatnot. So he, 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 is, he is the main man. You know, we, we depend heavily on the guide his local knowledge where the, the snow's best, uh, where it deposits from certain wind, wind storms, new snow storms. So, um, he kind of makes a call. We fly to certain areas and then, um, we get out, check the snow, check conditions. Sometimes it's no good. And we, we fly to a new spot. Um, but generally, uh, the guides are spot on. They know right where to put us. Wow. Your first time jumping out of, uh, a chopper onto uh, what I would imagine is a pretty small landing base and uh, facing uh, something steeper than 45 degrees. What was that like? <laughs> you know, you just, you kind of just follow the guy in front of you. Um, try not to act scared. Um, and, uh, you know, listen, again, listen to your guide. Um, you know, I was, it was my first trip to Alaska. So everybody knew that everybody knew, you know, keep an eye on, on the new guy, uh, which is, which is always good. That's one of the great things about working with people you, you really know and trust versus, uh, people you've never met. Yeah. You create a, a relationship, you know, how to read each other's body language. Yeah. While you're out there, obviously you're not, you're not chit chatting while you're charging down a mountain, right? Um, you know, actually sometimes, uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we are sometimes, sometimes it is, it is a very relaxed atmosphere, um, uh, when, 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 when it can be. Really? Do you guys have radios or how do you, how do you, I mean, do you just stop and talk? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have radios, um, you know, so it, depending on if we're hiking on slope together, we'll just be communicating without the radios. Right. Um, sometimes I'll be stationed literally one or two miles away on a faraway ridge shooting a very, very large telephoto. Um, and then we're communicating, you know, via radio in that case. Right. Okay. So you are actually in tow. You are, you are pretty much charged with, uh, with following these guys who are big mountain skiers and they, they are guides and skiers, um, professionally. This is what they do. At this point you say you try and do what they do. And, uh, I just have a hard time visualizing exactly how that goes down when somebody is is uh, as effective as a professional skier at dissecting a mountain and knowing which, you know, which line to take that's not going to throw snow. How do you know that you're doing uh, what they want you to do, I guess, is speak to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, for the, for the most part, um, 
you know, the athletes always go first. Uh, many times it, it may be a first descent. No, no humans ever gone down that particular aspect of the mountain. And so they, they go first. Um, and at one, you know, after the film crew, after we have captured those images, um, we've got to get down to the bottom. Also, the helicopters don't pick us back up at the top. So, um, a lot of times we literally follow the first ascent. So we're the second person, third person down that run. And you just follow the track in front of you. Literally just follow your friend who's a little bit better than you. Who's got a little bit, um, bigger cojones. So I'll do it first. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we, as the media crew, we, we have the, uh, the, the midget on our back, so to speak, with these, you know, 40, 50 pound camera bags, which uh, are quite debilitating in the sense of, of riding that kind of terrain um, aggressively. That's cool perspective for us to hear, because, I mean, coming from, you know, the reader, um, when I when I crack open a publication and I look at a, you know, at a star athlete in their prime, just charging down, you know, what would be a, an expert only line it's a little bit foreign to think about how that shot got there. But I mean, if you back up and, and you kind of zoom out, so to speak, look at this thing from 30,000 feet. Well, of course it didn't just plop down on the page. It had, you know, there was a, there was a, a Blair sitting there on that same line capturing that subject in action. So that's kind of a, it's kind of cool to hear more than what the photo will, will speak to you. It's kind of cool to hear what the other half of that story is. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy, man. So, you did this for how many days? Um, it was a nine-day photo shoot total. Yeah. Um, we were, uh, you know, probably into like day seven. Okay. Uh, in, into the shoot, so we were, you know, very, very synced into the train, very comfortable with with our surroundings, um, our guides, you know. Okay. How many uh, at this point? How many landings and uh, and runs had you completed in in the first seven days? Oh, geez, probably. 30, 40, maybe 50, um, you know, various, you know, getting in, getting out, moving around quite, you know, quite a few times. I got to believe that one of the, the big risks that you need to calculate beforehand is, is avalanche, right? Definitely. That, that is, you know, our, our number one issue concern, uh, is avalanches as well as what's referred to as slough, which is the snow that we, uh, dislodge while just, you know, snowboarding down the mountain. Uh, the mountains are so steep that that really piles up and can gain a lot of speed and uh, is equally as dangerous as, as a uh, traditional fracture of the snow line and an avalanche. Okay. So up until the first, your first seven days, you, you guys had no encounters with, with slough or avalanche, correct? Correct. Yeah. We, we had great, great stability. Um, you know, the wind had been moving the snow around predictably, and, and uh, yeah, we had been uh, kind of a, a free range of, of, of options. Nice. And had you had any any cruddy weather, or was it pretty much bluebird the whole time? We, it was bluebird every day. Um, very untraditional of Alaska. Usually, if you go for 10 days, you hope to fly two. Um, and so, you know, flying so many consecutive days in a row was, was just uh, a dream come true, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. So there's a reason that you stopped at seven days on a nine day adventure because, uh, you ran into, to something that, uh, changed your life. Tell us a little bit about, uh, what you guys encountered on day eight. 
we started the day like every other day. Um, kind of took some warm-up laps and progressively got to some steeper and steeper terrain. And we were getting towards the tail end of the day, and we had a final um, objective or area that uh, we were thinking about riding. And um, as we were finishing up uh, a zone, um, I decided to take a different run than everybody else uh, to the bottom uh, landing zone. And uh, in doing so, ended up getting into a region I had not scouted, nobody was aware of, and hooked my edge on a uh, chunk of ice above um, a patch of uh, cliffs with a few, uh, few trees. And I was adjusting my speed and unknowingly hit this chunk of ice. And uh, that 50 pound camera bag just, you know, glued me to the surface. And just as I was trying to push myself up, get myself free, my slough hit me. And uh, at that point, I felt more like I was swimming a class five rapid than I was snowboarding in a in Alaska, doing everything I could to, to back swim as, as I was told and instructed to do, trying to essentially steer myself around a few trees, um, knowing this cliff line was coming and chose to uh, ride the larger percentage of the snow through a chute rather than an open cliff and took about a 30 foot tumble, very reminiscent of swimming waterfalls um, or you, you may recall from our, our history, uh, jumping celestial falls, similar to that experience, but at a much grander scale. Yeah, no, I've never felt that in snow, but what Abe's referring to, I mean, when, when you've got that much snow that's pouring down uh, a steep mountain side, you're, you're effectively riding on air that's separated by snow particles. And it's, uh, you're completely at the mercy of that that fall line. I mean, there's there's very little you can do to control that except put your feet down in front of you and spread your arms out and try and stay on top if you can, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're basically, it felt like water? Uh, similar, yeah, um, in that in that sense. So just the, the movement and how I was, you know, severely obstructed to, uh, to, to moving left and right, just trying to keep my head above the surface. Oh, my word. Did, uh, did any of the guides see it while it was happening? Yeah, for, fortunately, the, the landing zone was was below that that aspect, maybe a few hundred yards away, and uh, so the bulk of my group was was down in the, the sunny pickup zone, and the, our helicopter was was on its way. Okay, to, uh, pick us up. Did you get buried at all? Um, almost all the way to my over my head. Um, I I remember I saw my friends, and then at that point, the snow just kept piling up faster and faster up my chest and over my back and I just covered my face with my goggles to create an airspace and put my arm up in the air um, in hopes that, that that would be enough visual reference my friends could find me I was pretty convinced I was gonna go completely buried oh, at the my word. everything was piling up did you think you were a goner I did I, I uh, as I was passing a few trees um, before I launched over the, the little chute cliff I really thought that was it. I, uh, you know, I, I'd say there was a sense of a, a flashing of the light, you know, thinking of my, my, uh, pregnant wife with our firstborn and, you know, just like, really, this is it. That, that, that was a conscious thought process going through my mind at that, that time while actively trying to prevent that and do everything I was taught to, uh, you know, stay alive. Yeah, I'm glad you had the wherewithal to at least, you know, pull your goggles over your face and keep your arms up. But 
Dude, they didn't have uh, avalanche bags then, did they? Or were those fresh to the market? Uh, that, was, that was just the infancy of those that technology. Um, and I think maybe one of our athletes in the group had had one. Okay. Um, and he was, you know, I think he, you know, maybe the first or second year that that was available. All right. So your buddies come. Your well, the chopper probably got to you first, right? So while the chopper landed, the chopper heli pilot didn't know what was going on. Um, so uh, he landed as my friends were were making their way very quickly to me, and uh, they were able to get to me probably within a minute or two, and uh, you know just hand dig me out, assist me in getting out. That's so crazy. Does uh, does does that moment in time uh, wake you up at night? Do you ever have any any? dreams that that start off that way <laughs> uh I, I wouldn't say uh, at night but when i since then have been put in similar very steep avalanche prone areas it's definitely heightened my awareness or, or changed my my read on on where to be crazy man um all right well then what how'd uh, how'd the day finish off did you need to go back to the lodge and uh have a few beers and settle down well i i, I sure would have loved that but um, we, we had good light. It was still a photo shoot, and there was work to be done. Um, so we piled into the helicopter and uh, flew to the final objective, which uh, I had not seen, didn't know anything about. So an area referred to as uh, Davies Coolar, which ended up being about a 4,000-foot a um, face that uh, traditionally they land the helicopter about halfway, and you hike the top. 1500 feet which is about a 55 to 58 degree pitch but we had a, a very confident heli pilot that day and he uh he did a test flight through the top of the couloir which had rock granite spires sticking out on either side we passed through probably about 10 feet of space on the between the rotors and the rocks he said he could land on top so we we start to come in for the approach just crawling in, crawling in, just just as we're getting getting to start to touch the snow with the heli- helicopter pads there, the guy just radios over to the pilot. I want to scoot forward. There's a cornice, and just as he says the word cornice, the cornice breaks. Oh my helicopter word. lunges back about 15, 20 degrees backwards, like a like backflip. And uh, at that point, I mean, we're all just screaming like girls. Um, you know, all we're staring at is rock out the side of the helicopter. It's tilting backwards. And we're, we're just like, oh, that's it. This is over. And our, our amazing pilot just, you know, uh, ice, you know, you could just, you know, veins of ice. He just powers up, just pivots the nose right on the same snow that he was already touching. and just nudges us forward a little bit into some more stable snow. And our guide gives him the thumbs up, opens the door and out we go. Um, most helicopters hanging over the edge of the cornice at that time and we climb out of the front and uh, helicopter takes off and goes to get the rest of our group we had a big group that day does the same landing with our second group obviously no cornice to break off we're up there we get prop washed and it's just complete chaos up there and uh, finally get our whole group and uh, helicopter leaves or, you know, finally, the riders are getting their gear together. I finally had a chance to kind of crawl out to the edge of the, the run that we were about to ride down. And 
at that point, I was looking at the scariest, steepest run of my life, uh, without a doubt. Oh, my word, man. So hold on. You get buried in an avalanche up to your neck. You think you're a goner. Your buddies see you. The chopper sees you. You get dug out. And rather than go back to the lodge and lick your wounds, you jump in a chopper, which goes cruising up higher than any of the other fly zones that are typically uh, established on Davies Kular. You got granite 10 feet of either side of the, the main prop. And as the chopper comes in to land on, how big is this landing space? Like I said, we, we had about 8 to 10 feet of space on either side of the rotors. So you uh, had, what, 30, a 30-foot 30 area in total? I'd say, I'd say so, a 30-foot little, little slot between two mountain peaks. And as he goes to set it down, the cornice that, uh, that he touches down with or on breaks free, and you guys yeah. lurch backwards, and you think you're going to die for the second time in a 10-minute chunk of, of life? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he goes back to grab your other friends, and now there's what eight of you up there? Exactly, yeah. We've got the whole the whole crew. A filmer had flown in the day before. That was his uh, his first full day with us, so we we had the full full gang with us. And you've got to piss your pants steep shoot that you got to maintain your cool through in order to uh, to effectively get down safely. Exactly. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. What was the span of time there? Are we talking like from the point where you got buried in an avalanche to the point where you're staring down a 65 degree pitch? Uh, probably 30 minutes. Oh my word. So you're, you're gotta, you gotta be getting almost exhausted from the adrenaline surging through your veins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Just, just living in the moment and, and, uh, trying to keep my cool and and not not lose it i mean it, it was a pretty heavy day and looking down that run um unlike our traditional um photo shoots and, and filming endeavors like as i was telling you where the the pro goes first in this case the best photo was was going to be had probably about 800 to 900 feet below where we were at um nested up between these two um, knife edge spines essentially that protruded out of the this cooler. Um, so that that was that was without a doubt that's where where the photo needed to be taken. So in this this unfortunate for my 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 take um, turn of events, man, I needed to go first down down this this run. There was no tracks to follow. Um, I had to go first. Uh, oh my gosh. At this point, that's I, I looked to my guide. I looked to to Ed, and I said, "Ed, uh, I can't do this. I, I physically cannot go down there on my own first. Um, and he said, "Okay, well, uh, I'll go first. I'll try to cut a line um, where you want to shoot the photos from, and then that'll give you a, a track to follow." And that uh, so we sent we sent the guide first. Ed Ed went down, set up a a little area um, that, that I could get to. And so then it was my turn. Um, and at this point, I just didn't want to be there, was ready to, to go home, severely questioning my job, my lifestyle. Um, 
you know, the thought of flipping burgers at a fast food joint was sounding like a very attractive career choice. <laughs> um, and uh, similar to when I was laying in that, that hospital bed uh, after fracturing my skull, I, uh, I had to pick the higher road and, and push through and strapped in, dropped in, held it together. Um, still the steepest run of my life. Uh, I'll never forget the lack of edge contact and confidence that I felt going through that, that time. And just all I could do was look down the run thinking how I was, you know, planning my, my, uh, my pinball route, um, and just tried to hold it together. Finally made it down to our guide. He had made out a, a nice little, little pad, maybe about three feet square for, uh, he and I and the filmer who was right behind me to come down to uh, shoot from. So we had three men standing on a three foot square on uh, what felt like about a 270 degree exposure of nearly 58 degrees set up and ready, ready to do our job. Dude, for those of you who don't know what type of um, run Abe just described, 65 degrees is about five degrees shy of what will hold a ski. Anything over 70 degrees and you're pretty much falling. You can't, there's there's zero edge contact taking place at 70 degrees. So when Abe says he was, he was holding on to what very little edge contact he could maintain, he's basically free falling down a mountain. Yeah, more or less. It was a, a, a pseudo controlled descent uh, that was supposed to be uh, a very... Uh, slow on my heel edge safe approach which quickly uh became just you know um again just just gravity management maybe would be a good way of putting it just an exercise in staying alive exactly yeah just finally made it to our little safety net and then um our filmer made it down and uh he made it down i think he looked about as white as a ghost as i did um because uh had, had kind of had us on the shoulders and reestablished our security. And at that point, we were ready to uh, start shooting photos. We had saved the other side of the couloir uh, for the athletes that had really good, soft snow that they were going to have the pleasure of riding down. And uh, we sent them one at a time, traditionally, as, as we do. They rode about a 1,500-foot run one at a time. And I'll tell you, after I got about three of the seven athletes photographed, I, I told my guy that was it. I was done. I was I was not going to shoot the, the other athletes. I uh, I had enough good photos, and I my, the, the sickness and turmoil in my stomach and knots in my stomach from standing in such an exposed area. Snow had been cascading down upon us the whole time from the athletes as they had been descending, so... I told him I was out of there. I was going to meet him, meet him down where the rest of the athletes were, and we rendezvoused below that that spot where you traditionally uh, start your hike ascent for the the main couloir. Man, I must have felt like you were just holding your breath for an hour. It, it really did. I, I really don't recall breathing. If every every movement was was very focused um, and and calculated, yeah. Uh, that entire time yeah that's that's incredible after you know the remaining 
the remaining athletes made it down to the bottom of the hill. Uh, what'd you guys do? Did you go back to the lodge at, after that? What was really nice was, uh, after we had reconvened at the bottom, we then took, uh, what was referred to as a party lap, more or less all eight of us at the same time down the bottom 2000 feet of that run through, uh, another cooler of 45 degree angle. And, uh, just, just for fun, no, no cameras and had a chance to just ride for fun and, and, uh, really unique train and got picked up at the bottom and back to the lodge where, uh, you know, where another day was clocked out. Yeah. You know what? That almost, I, I would go back and forth on that fun run, but I bet it was somewhat equivalent to getting back on the bull. Um, I think it was a little bit. It, um, it, it, it definitely helped. Um, at the time, I don't think I was thinking it, of it that way. I was just trying to get out of there. Yeah. And that was my shortest route back to the lodge. Um, I was very ready for, for ground, sea level. <laughs> uh, it was a very heavy day. Yeah. Wow, man. What an epic adventure. Abe is going to do uh, a giveaway. And uh, for any of you listeners who, uh, who subscribe to the show, um, we are going to post uh, an Instagram photo of a print that Abe captured on the trip that he talked about today. Um, so one of the athletes that was featured in that shoot will be on that print. And uh, we're going to draw a lucky winner and, uh, and give that away. Yeah, we'll go ahead and um, give away a, a 16 by 24 print of uh, Alex Yoder uh, as he was uh, descending that, that couloir that I was uh, talking about in my story. Awesome. Stay tuned. I'll have that, uh, I'll have that up on the website shortly. That's a, that's a cool story. Um, obviously, you made it out alive, so we're glad to hear that. Great to uh, to hear that story firsthand, and uh, I think there's probably a life lesson buried in there. Uh, no pun intended. Let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. in In a few sentences, what do you think the life lesson that's uh, that's come out of that scenario uh, been for you, Abe? Um, I, I think it's uh, something I've I've learned when I when I originally had shattered my skull, um, and that was to just always choose the harder, maybe, maybe, uh, what seems like the higher road, um, to push yourself, never give up. At the expense of sounding like I'm just regurgitating what you're saying, or at the expense of sounding cliche, there is something to that where without, without pushing into that unknown area that you know is going to be painful, you know, is going to be, uh, dangerous. It's going to be risky. There's going to be, um, there's going to be a very good chance that you get hurt um, pushing into that territory and uh, and charging forward oftentimes produces, you know, results that uh, that forges uh, a man of more character. Right. I, I agree. I agree. I, I think uh, at this day and age, I think we live in a very safe, um, sheltered, sheltered world. And, and, and I think. Uh, you know, those willing to, to live outside of those bounds and, and push what they feel is comfortable um, or, or sometimes safe. Um, and that's as an action uh, adventurer or, or as a, a financial deal or as a, um, a life, you know, um, choice Yeah. To, to just always push yourself. 
do you do you feel like in looking back on that story do you ever feel like you were being reckless no no uh, i definitely reflect on that the whole time and uh, everything we were doing was a, a calculated maneuver um we knew risks we 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 took took it as it as it was laid out you know we took the cards that were dealt with us uh or for us and um and adapted yeah and I think that's that's kind of part of the one of those morals was just just learning to live with what we're what's thrown at us whether it, whether it comes at us very quickly and repetitively or or spaced out over time yeah um just coming from kind of a recreational background and, and getting into some of the stuff that um we did there's this there's this point where experience and knowledge on a graph crosses with uh with acceptable risk and that's kind of it sounds like you you kind of maxed out that threshold where those two meet on that day i I think so i think i did and um i think i think uh whenever i go outside i think i'm trying to find that that threshold and i I hope that 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 scale is always sliding up right yeah i mean as you gain experience you would hope that you'd you'd feel more comfortable pushing the envelope even further right because i mean even for those athletes that's a that's a testament to those athletes having fun on a on a 45 degree pissed after they just did a 65 right exactly they're they're comfortable with that i've since visited alaska many many other times in in similar environments um after that trip and uh you know every time was just uh we we jokingly but but honestly refer to it as constant death management um up in alaska but uh it keeps you on your toes it keeps you living and uh allows you to just be be very focused on the moment so whatever that i mean wherever that lies if that uh grid for you is you know sitting in a kayak on a class three rapid and and maneuvering your way through some exposed boulders um if that presents thrill then you are you are managing that objective risk. You're meeting your experience and your knowledge with the appropriate amount of inherent risk. If uh, if you're you know a five time world expert big mountain skier and uh, you're on the bunny hill, you're you're not really flexing that that threshold. Um, so I think there's just kind of an underlying you know there might even be a secondary lesson here that would suggest we do better uh, when we, when we continue to push that envelope, right. In life. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, when, when, when you're focused on the, the moment and the now, I think that's some of the more, the purest kind of and type of thinking. And uh, through that process, it, it allows you to, I think uh, you're, you're forced to think outside of the box or outside of, of what seems comfortable or normal. Mm. And, and often uh, that that inertia or that initiation um, can result in really good good accomplishments. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Let's take a minute to uh, to to break down uh, a few few questions for Abe. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the gear that you took with you when you went um, on that first trip. Was there anything that you were missing that you wish you had? Uh, well, definitely uh, an airbag, yeah. uh, an airbag backpack. Definitely uh, um, would would 
have loved to have had one of those and since uh, purchased one very shortly after that trip. You did? What would you end up going with? The Avalon or the other the other type? I had an ABS for a while and then I just recently purchased the new uh, Black Diamond. Um, I believe it's called the Vortex. Very uh, unique system that doesn't require the CO2. It's uh, battery powered, which allows it to be uh, um, deployed multiple times in a day. Uh, hopefully you never would have to. But um, and allows us to fly um, very easily. The previous models with the condensed air did not allow us to fly, so we had to pick up charging units at a dive store in Anchorage, Alaska, or Haynes, Alaska. You can imagine there's not very many dive stores in those regions. I see where you're going. Yeah, to get through TSA, you couldn't take compressed air with you. Exactly. I got you. Okay. So this new, the Black Diamond is actually battery battery powered. Does that is that sketchy, or do you just take backups? Uh, it's a it's an internal built lithium uh, ion battery that has a charging system for it, um, and it's just a, it's a really well tested, um, proven system. They they released it, I believe, last year, redesigned it, and I think three or four other companies have uh, licensed that technology as well. And I think that's going to be the next front, um, especially in an expeditionary sense where where multiple deployments on a trip without needing to change your air cartridges is uh, really nice. Nice. Any listeners going to uh, to Alaska this coming winter um, might want to check that out. I'll throw that up on the show notes. But, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Abe. Definitely uh, something you, you want to look into if you're planning on doing some big mountain uh, skiing. What were you doing as far as uh, clothing? Uh, well, you know, in Patagonia um, – Clothing, clothing shoot. So we were we were decked out in uh, head to toe Patagonia, literally uh, from the underwear up. Um, and yeah, merino wool usually uh, you know has, has that base layer. Yeah. Um, quite often to keep photo shoots in that nature more productive, we'll actually change out clothes within each other throughout the day. Um, you know, just to mix up who's wearing what jacket, what pants and stuff. So. Um, but yeah, all, all the, the, the latest Patagonia equipment, I definitely remember the house layer outfits being phenomenal. Yeah. Um, as far as, uh, as far as ski gear, what, uh, what'd you have underneath of you? Uh, I was on the Jones snowboards. Most of the athletes on that trip were, were on the Jones snowboard program. Okay. Is that, you still riding that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Hmm. Um, I live just. 45 minutes from Lake Tahoe and, uh, that's Jeremy's home, home area. Definitely like to support a, uh, a rider owned company. And, the local you know, guys. So that's cool. Guy, yeah. Awesome. What were the, uh, the goggles strapped to your helmet that actually ended up inadvertently saving your life? <laughs> uh, probably, probably some Smith goggles. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I wear too. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, photography. I want to I want to go through just kind of more or less a rapid fire round with you. Let's talk about the camera uh, related stuff that that you get into on a regular basis, and then um, to finish things up, I wouldn't mind just kind of chatting with you a little bit about gallery and Tahoe, and and kind of plug you in with our, our listener base if they're uh, interested in following your work. What kind of camera did you start with? What was that? Uh, what was that first digital camera that you started playing with? Outside of the one that you got from from your grandmother, uh, my first digital camera was uh, a Nikon uh, D1. Um, was 
was the first first digital SLR really really produced. Yep. And then uh, graduating through the years, uh, I've seen you post some of the the equipment that you've used, but uh, bring us up to speed on what you've been using in in the past uh, few months. Well, uh, most recently last week, a good friend of mine and mentor uh, loaned me his 100 megapixel uh, digital back for for my media format camera system. So uh, yeah, my first digital camera, 2.7 megapixels, and last week I was shooting uh, 100. In, in a span of what, 10 years? Uh, yeah, about yeah, 10 or 12 years. That's crazy. That is uh, a testament to, to watching technology progress. We're living in a pretty exciting time for, for gear. I was just talking about that with another guy in my last episode, and we've all graduated to the point where we're walking around with computers in our pockets. Um, and it wasn't too long ago that that computer was strapped to the wall. So b- basically, we've got picture quality that's 100 times better than it was 12 years ago. It's unbelievable. And what was the what was the name of that camera that was doing 100 megapixel? Uh, it was the new Phase One uh, IQ Three back. IQ Three, okay. Yeah. What is your all time favorite capture? If you had to pick one, boy, you know that's that's it's a popular question that I, I hear a lot. Um, it's probably one of the hardest to answer. Um, you know, and, and I think honestly, it is probably either the image I just got done shooting smart my last Uh, photo that's the best answer yeah um or (laughs) it's the image i'm about to take yeah oh i like that one even better i like that one even better um what let's let's rephrase that a little bit um what capture probably gained you uh the most publicity um when i photographed a uh, test fired nuclear missile off the coast of la uh i was in san francisco and was able to capture that over the city of San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge, that that definitely um, got my name name around the uh, the U.S. as well as internationally. Is that hanging up uh, in the Blair household? Uh, it is not actually, um, but uh, it's it's in some pretty prestigious locations. Um, Pentagon has a copy of it. Um, most of the locations um, are classified or not allowed to the public. And I cannot get photographs of them from the employees within those buildings. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it was a, a amazing, you know, circumstance of, of events and, and moment. Uh, and a lot of people definitely, obviously, in the, the Navy and, and in the missile defense community, it was the photographic culmination of, of their life's work in the sense of a non-destructive, missile you know photographed over a, a mass populace um that was a really unique image so am i am i going to ever be able to see that yeah i mean the, it was all over facebook the image i was on cnn with the image um it's on my website um i still have a couple of copies of the 20 print limited edition uh left um from that one awesome i'm gonna go check it out Describe to me your dream setup and uh, and where it takes place. As far as a photographic composition? Yeah. Oh, you know, um, I'd say currently uh, what I would love to get, I've seen it before from other photographers, but I have yet to witness the elusive rainbow and lightning phenomenon that can happen at sunset, um, often in the desert southwest. Um, 
so that's that's a phenomenon. There's there's a handful of phenomenons I'd say that that I would like to witness, um, you know, with my camera in hand. Yeah. Um, you have any that that kind of provides me with a nice segue into into this question. Um, you have any plans for the solar eclipse? Uh, I do not actually. Uh, I photographed the eclipse that was in the U.S. in 2012. Very happy with the image, and I believe actually that image is part of why it is going to be so crowded for this next one. Uh, CNN's been using using that image for quite a while to promote the upcoming event. So I'll actually be floating a wilderness river in Alaska, um, about as far away as I can be from from uh, from that chaos. Oh, good for you, man. What are you doing? You going fishing? Yeah, a friend of mine who owns a fishing lodge pulling me out of the uh, retired fishing guide status, and I'm going to help him out on a uh, six-day float down the uh, Alagnac River up in Bristol Bay. Yeah, buddy. Abe's quite an accomplished fly angler as well. That guy uh, can put on a casting clinic like none other. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Abe, I know that you had uh, you had previously owned your own gallery in Truckee, and recently there were some changes that were made. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about uh, where your work is showcased and uh, where people could could find your your stuff. Uh, well, locally uh, in the Tahoe area, I'm represented by the Edington Gallery in Tahoe City and uh, South Lake. Uh, we hope to have another location opening by the end of 2018 up in uh, Truckee as well. Nice. And always at my my website too, uh, just ablair.com. Okay, so you'll make direct sales to uh, to anyone who's interested in your work to, at uh, abeblair.com? Correct, yeah. Okay, so if anybody wants to, uh, to check out what Abe's got, uh, it's abeblair.com. If you guys have any questions about today's show, I'll throw a few show notes up and uh, you can reach me at info at adventuredeficit.com. You can also visit our website at www.adventuredeficit.com or you can find us on iTunes at The Adventure Deficit Podcast. Abe, appreciate your time, man. It's always great catching up and uh, we wish you the very best uh, in your uh, in your career and uh, we hope to catch up with you soon, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on the show. It's great to talk to you and reconnect. It's been, been too long. Yeah, absolutely. All right, take care.